Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to the show. I'm Marco Palmieri, and with me is my co-host, Christina Teleska. Co-pilot. Can I be your co-pilot? It goes well with today's story. Well, now I'm going to have to get a bumper sticker that says, Christina is my co-pilot. <laughs> what, 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 what should your call sign be? How about whiplash? That's perfect. Excellent. <laughs> or hurricane, but, but whiplash is good, too. Well, on a more serious note, science fiction writers draw a lot of inspiration from advances in technology. But of course... Every technological advance has the potential to be weaponized, and usually is, sometimes even before the science fiction writer gets to it. Yes, and often the technological advances occur because someone is trying to make instinct obsolete. I think our next story really gets to the heart of that. Can you set it up? Drones have not perfected warfare yet. Human operators still make mistakes and suffer a high rate of PTSD. But technology is finally ready to take people out of the equation. This is In the Loop, written by Ken Liu and voiced by Jane Santos. When Kira was nine, her father turned into a monster. It didn't happen overnight. He went to work every morning, like always, and when he came in the door in the evening, Kara would ask him to play catch with her. That used to be her favorite time of the day. But the yeses came less frequently, and then not at all. He'd sit at the table and stare. She'd ask him questions, and he wouldn't answer. He used to always have a funny answer for everything, and she'd repeat his jokes to her friends and think he was the cleverest dad in the whole world. She had loved those moments when he'd teach her how to swing a hammer properly, how to measure and saw and chisel. She would tell him that she wanted to be a builder when she grew up, 
and he'd nod and say that was a good idea. But he stopped taking her to his workshop in the shed to make things together, and there was no explanation. Then he started going out in the evenings. At first, mom would ask him when he'd be back. He'd look at her like she was a stranger before closing the door behind him. By the time he came home, Kira and her brothers were already in bed, but she would hear shouts and sometimes things breaking. Mom began to look at Dad like she was afraid of him, and Kira tried to help with getting the boys to bed, to make her bed without being asked, to finish her dinner without complaint, to do everything perfectly, hoping that would make things better, back to the way they used to be. But Dad didn't seem to pay any attention to her or her brothers. Then, one day, he slammed Mom into the wall. Kira sat there in the kitchen and felt the whole house shake. She didn't know what to do. He turned around and saw Kira, and his face scrunched up like he hated her, hated her mother, hated himself most of all. And he fled the house without saying another thing. Mom packed a suitcase and took Kira and her brothers to Grandma's place that evening, and they stayed there for a month. Kira thought about calling her father, but she didn't know what she would say. She tried to imagine herself asking the man on the other end of the line, what have you done with daddy? A policeman came looking for her mother. Kira hid in the hall so she could hear what he was telling her. We don't think it was a homicide. That was how she found out that her father had died. She didn't cry then and wouldn't cry until much later. They moved back to the house where there was a lot to do. Folding up Dad's uniforms for storage, packing away his regular clothes to give away, cleaning the house so it could be sold, getting ready to move away permanently. She caressed Dad's medals and badges, shiny and neatly laid out in a box, and that was when she finally cried. They found a piece of paper at the bottom of Dad's dresser drawer. What is it? She asked Mom. Mom read it over. It's from your dad's commander at the army. Her hands shook. It shows how many people he had killed. She showed Kira the number. 1,251. The number lingered in Kira's mind. As if that gave his life meaning. As if that defined him and them. Kira walked quickly, pulling her coat tight against a late fall chill. It was her senior year in college, and on-campus recruiting was in full swing. Because Kira's school was old and full of red brick buildings named after families that had been wealthy and important even before the founding of this republic, its students were desirable to employers. She was on her way back to her apartment from a party hosted by a small quantitative trading company in New York that was generating good buzz on campus. Companies in management consulting, financial services, and Silicon Valley had booked hotel rooms around the school and were hosting parties for prospective interviewees every night. And Kira, as a comp sci major, found herself in high demand. This was the night when she would need to finalize her list of ranked preferences 
and she had to strategize carefully to have a shot at getting one of the interview slots for the most coveted companies in the lottery. Excuse me? A young man stepped in her way. Would you sign this petition? She looked at the clipboard held in front of her. Stop the war. Technically, America wasn't at war. There had been no declaration of war by Congress, just a president exercising his office's inherent authority. But maybe the war had never stopped. America left. America went back. America promised to leave again sometime. A decade had passed. People kept on dying far away. I'm sorry, Kara said, not looking the boy in the eyes. I can't. Are you for the war? The boy's voice was tired, the incredulity almost an act. He was there canvassing for signatures alone in the evening because no one cared. When so few Americans died, the conflict didn't seem real. How could she explain to him that she did not believe in the war, did not want to have anything to do with it, and yet... Signing the petition the boy held would seem to her tantamount to a betrayal of the memory of her father, would seem a declaration that what he had done was wrong. So all she said was, I'm not into politics. Back in her apartment, Kira took off her coat and flipped on the TV. The largest protest so far in front of the American embassy. Protesters are demanding that the U.S. cease the drone strikes, which so far have caused more than 300 deaths in the country this year, many of whom the protesters claim were innocent civilians. The U.S. ambassador, Kira turned off the TV. Her mood had been ruined, and she could not focus on the task of ranking her interview preferences. Agitated, she tried to clean the apartment, scrubbing the sink vigorously to dry the images in her mind away. As she had grown older, Kara had read and seen every interview with other drone operators who suffered from PTSD. In the faces of those men, she had searched for traces of her father. I sat in an air-conditioned office and controlled the drone with a joystick while watching on a monitor what the drone camera saw. If a man was suspected of being the enemy, I had to make a decision and pull the trigger and then zoom in and watch as the man's body parts flew around the screen, as the rest of him bled out until his body cooled down and disappeared from the infrared camera. Kira turned on the faucet and held her hands under the hot water, as if she could wash off the memory of her father coming home every evening, silent, sullen, gradually turning into a stranger. Every time you wonder, did I kill the right person? Was the sack on that man's back filled with bombs or just some hunks of meat? Were those three men trying to set up an ambush, or were they just tired and taking a break behind those rocks by the road? You kill a hundred people, a thousand people, and sometimes you find out afterwards that you were wrong, but not always. You were a hero, Kara said. She wiped her face with her wet hands. The water was hot against her face, and she could pretend it was all just water. No, you don't understand. It's different from shooting at someone when they're also shooting at you, trying to kill you. 
You don't feel brave pushing a button to kill people who are not in uniform, who look like they're going for a visit with a friend. When you're sitting thousands of miles away, watching them through a camera, it's not like a video game. And yet, it also is. You don't feel like a hero. I miss you. I wish I could have understood. Every day, after you're done with killing, you get up from your chair and walk out of the office building and go home. Along the way, you hear the birds chittering overhead and see teenagers walking by, giggling or moping, self-absorbed in their safe cocoons. And then you open the door to your home. Your spouse wants to tell you about her annoying boss, and your children are waiting for you to help them with their homework. And you can't tell them a thing you've done. I think either you become crazy or you already were. She did not want him to be defined by the number on that piece of paper her mother kept hidden at the bottom of the box in the attic. They counted wrong, Dad, Kara said. They missed one death. Kara walked down the hall dejectedly. She was done with her last interview of the day, a hot Silicon Valley startup. She had been nervous, distracted, and flopped the brain teaser. It had been a long day, and she didn't get much sleep the night before. She was almost at the elevator when she noticed an interview schedule posted on the door of the suite next to the elevator for a company named AWS Systems. It hadn't been completely filled. A few of the slots on the bottom were blank. That generally meant an undesirable company. She took a closer look at the recruiting poster. They did something related to robotics. There were some shots of office buildings on a landscaped modern campus. Bullet points listed competitive salary and benefits. Not flashy, but it seemed attractive enough. Why weren't people interested? Then she saw it. Candidates need to pass screening for security clearance. That would knock out many of her classmates who weren't U.S. citizens. And it likely meant government contracts. Defense, probably. She shuddered. Her family had had enough of war. She was about to walk away when her eyes fell on the last bullet point on the poster. Relieve the effects of PTSD on our heroes. She wrote her name on one of the blank lines and sat down on the bench outside the door to wait. You have impressive credentials, the man said. The best I've seen all day, actually. I already know we'll want to talk to you some more. Do you have any questions? This was what Kara had been waiting for all along. You're building robotic systems to replace human-controlled drones, aren't you? for the war? The recruiter smiled. You think we're cyberdyne systems? Kara didn't laugh. My father was a drone operator. The man became serious. I can't reveal any classified information, so we have to speak only in hypotheticals. Hypothetically, there may be advantages to using autonomous robotic systems over human-operated machines. Like what? It can't be about safety. The drone operators are perfectly safe back here. You think machines will fight better? No, we're not interested in making ruthless killer robots. 
but we shouldn't make people do the jobs that should be done by machines. Kira's heart beat faster. Tell me more. There are many reasons why a machine makes a better soldier than a human. A human operator has to make decisions based on very limited information, just what he can see from a video feed, sometimes alongside intelligence reports. Deciding whether to shoot when all you have to go on is the view from a shaking camera and confusing, contradictory intel is not the kind of thinking humans excel at. There's too much room for error. An operator might hesitate too long and endanger an innocent. Or he might be too quick on the trigger and violate the rules of engagement. Decisions by different operators would be based on hunches and emotions and at odds with each other. It's inconsistent and inefficient. Machines can do better. Worst of all, Kira thought, a human can be broken by the experience of having to decide. If we take these decisions away from people, make it so that individuals are out of the decision-making loop, the result should be less collateral damage and a more humane, more civilized form of warfare. But all Kira could think was, no one would have to do what my father did. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. The process of getting security clearance took a while. Kira's mother was surprised when Kira called to tell her that government investigators might come to talk to her. And Kira wasn't sure how to explain why she took this job when there were much better offers from other places. So she just said, this company helps veterans and soldiers. Her mother said carefully, your father would be proud of you. Meanwhile, they assigned her to the Civilian Applications Division, which made robots for factories and hospitals. Kira worked hard and followed all the rules. She didn't want to mess up before she got to do what she really wanted. She was good at her job, and she hoped they noticed. Then, one morning, Dr. Stober, the head roboticist, called her to join him in a conference room. Kira's heart was in her throat as she walked over. Was she going to be let go? Had they decided that she couldn't be trusted because of what had happened to her father? That she might be emotionally unstable? She had always liked Dr. Stover, who seemed like a good mentor, but she had never worked with him closely. Welcome to the team, said a smiling Dr. Stover. 
Besides Kara, there were five other programmers in the room. Your security clearance arrived this morning, and I knew I wanted you on this team right away. This is probably the most interesting project at the company right now. The other programmers smiled and clapped. Kira grinned shyly at each of them in turn as she shook their outstretched hands. They all had reputations as the stars in the company. You're going to be working on the AW1 Guardians, one of our classified projects. One of the other programmers, a young man named Alex, cut in. These aren't like the field transport mules and remote surveillance craft we already make. The Guardians are unmanned, autonomous flying vehicles about the size of a small truck armed with machine guns and missiles. Kira noticed that Alex was really excited by the weapon systems. I thought we'd make those kinds already, Kira said. Not exactly, Dr. Stober said. Our other combat systems are meant for surgical strikes in remote places, or prototypes for frontline combat, where basically anything that moves can be shot. But these are designed for peacekeeping in densely populated urban areas, especially places where there are lots of Westerners or friendly locals to protect. Right now, we still have to rely on human operators. Alex said in a deadpan voice, it would be a lot easier if we didn't have to worry about collateral damage. Dr. Stober noticed that Kira didn't laugh and gestured for Alex to stop. Sarcasm aside, as long as we're occupying their country, there will be locals who think they can get some advantage from working with us and locals who wish we'd go away. I doubt that dynamic has changed in 5,000 years. We have to protect those who want to work with us from those who don't, or else the whole thing falls apart. And we can't expect the Westerners doing reconstruction over there to stay holed up in walled compounds all the time. They have to mingle. It's not always easy to tell who's the hostile, Kira said. That's the heart of the issue. Most of the time, much of the population is ambivalent. They'll help us if they think it's safe to do so, and they'll help the militants if they think that's the more convenient choice. I've always said that if they choose to help the militants blend in, I don't see why we need to be that careful. They made a decision, Alex said. I suppose some interpretations of the rules of engagement would agree with you. But we're telling the world that we're fighting a new kind of war, a clean war, one where we hold ourselves to a higher standard. How people see the way we conduct ourselves is just as important nowadays. How do we do that? Kira asked before Alex could further derail the conversation. The key piece of software we have to produce needs to replicate what the remote operators do now, only better. The government has supplied us with thousands of hours of footage from drone operations during the last decade or so. Some of them got the bad guys, and some of them got the wrong people. We'll need to watch the videos and distill the decision-making process of the operators into a formal procedure for identifying and targeting militants embedded in urban conditions, eliminate the errors, and make the procedure repeatable and applicable to new situations. Then we'll improve it by tapping into the kind of big 
data that individual operators can't integrate and make use of. The code will embody the minds of my father and others like him so that no one would have to do what they did, endured what they endured. Piece of cake, said Alex. And the room laughed, except for Kira and Dr. Stober. Kira threw herself into her work, a module they called the Ethical Governor, which was responsible for minimizing collateral damage when the robots fired upon suspects. She was working on a conscience for killing machines. She came in on the weekends and stayed late, sometimes sleeping in the office. She didn't view it as a difficult sacrifice to make. She couldn't talk about what she was working on with the few friends she had, and she didn't really want to spend more time outside the office with people like Alex. She watched the videos of drone strikes over and over. She wondered if any were missions her father had flown. She understood the confusion. The odd combination of power and powerlessness experienced when watching a man one is about to kill through a camera. The pressure to decide. The hardest part was translating this understanding into code. Computers required precision, and the need to articulate vague hunches had a way of forcing one to confront the ugliness that could remain hidden in the ambiguity of the human mind. To enable the robots to minimize collateral damage, Kira had to assign a value to each life that might be endangered in a crowded urban area. One of the most effective ways of doing this, at least in simulations, also turned out to be the most obvious. Profiling. The algorithm needed to translate racial characteristics and hints about language and dress into a number that held the power of life and death. She felt paralyzed by the weight of her task. Everything all right? Dr. Stover asked. Kira looked up from her keyboard. The office lights were off. It was dark outside. She was practically the last person left in the building. You've been working a lot. There's a lot to do. I've reviewed your check-in history. You seem to be stuck on the part where you need the facial recognition software to give you a probability on ethnic identity. Kara gazed at Dr. Stover's silhouette in the door to her office, backlit by the hall lights. There's no API for that. I know. But you are resisting the need to roll your own. It seems... wrong. Dr. Stober came in and sat down in the chair on the other side of her desk. I learned something interesting recently. During World War II, the U.S. Army trained dogs for warfare. They would act as sentries, guards, or maybe even as shock troops in an island invasion. Kira looked at him, waiting. The dogs had to be trained to tell allies apart from enemies. So they used Japanese-American volunteers to teach the dogs to profile, to attack those with certain kinds of faces. I've always wondered how those volunteers felt. It was repugnant, and yet it was also necessary. They didn't use German-American or Italian-American volunteers, did they? 
No, not that I'm aware of. I'm telling you this not to dismiss the problematic nature of your work, but to show you that the problem you're trying to solve isn't entirely new. The point of war is to prefer the lives of one group over the lives of another group. And short of being able to read everyone's minds, you must go with shortcuts and snap heuristics to tell apart those who must die from those who must be saved. Kira thought about this. She could not exempt herself from Dr. Stover's logic. After all, she had lamented her father's death for years, but she had never shed a tear for the thousands he had killed, no matter how many might have been innocent. His life was more valuable to her than all of them added together. His suffering meant more. It was why she was here. Our machines can do a better job than people. Attributes like appearance and language and facial expressions are but one aspect of the input. Your algorithm can integrate the footage from citywide surveillance by thousands of other cameras, the metadata of phone calls and social visits, individualized suspicion built upon data too massive for any one person to handle. Once the programming is done, the robots will make their decisions consistently, without bias, always supported by the evidence. Kira nodded. Fighting with robots meant that no one had to feel responsible for killing. Kira's algorithm had to be specified exactly and submitted to the government for approval. Sometimes the proposals came back, marked with questions and changes. She imagined some general, advised perhaps by a few military lawyers, looking through her pseudocode line by line. A target's attributes would be evaluated and assigned numbers. Is a target a man? Increases suspect score by 30 points. Is a target a child? Decreases suspect score by 25 points. Does the target's face match any of the suspected insurgents with at least a 50% probability? Increases suspect score by 500 points. And then there was the value to be assigned to the possible collateral damage around the target. Those who could be identified as Americans or had a reasonable probability of being Americans had the highest value. Then came native militia forces and groups who were allied with U.S. forces and the local elites. Those who looked poor and desperate were given the lowest values. The algorithm had to formalize anticipated fallout from media coverage and politics. Kira was getting used to the process. After the specifications had gone back and forth a few times, her task didn't seem so difficult. Kira looked at the number on the check. It was large. It's a small token of the company's appreciation for your efforts, said Dr. Stober. I know how hard you've been working. We got the official word on the trial period from the government today. They're very pleased. Collateral damage has been reduced by more than 80% since they started using the Guardians, with zero erroneous targets identified. Kira nodded. 
She didn't know if the 80% was based on the number of lives lost or the total amount of points assigned to the lives. She wasn't sure she wanted to think too hard about it. The decisions had already been made. <laughs> We should have a team celebration after work. And so, for the first time in months, Kira went out with the rest of the team. They had a nice meal, some good drinks, sang karaoke. And Kira laughed and enjoyed hearing Alex's stories about his exploits in war games. Am I being punished? Kira asked. No, no, of course not, Dr. Stover said, avoiding her gaze. It's just administrative leave until the investigation completes. Payroll will still make biweekly deposits, and your health insurance will continue, of course. I don't want you to think you're being scapegoated. It's just that you did most of the work on the ethical governor. The Senate Armed Forces Committee is really pushing for our methodology, and I've been told that the first round of subpoenas is coming down next week. You won't be called up, but we'll likely have to name you. Kira had seen the video only once, and once was enough. Someone in the market had taken it with a cell phone, so it was shaky and blurry. No doubt the actual footage from the Guardians would be much clearer, but she wasn't going to get to see that. It would be classified. The market was busy, the bustling crowd trying to take advantage of the cool air in the morning. It looked... If you squinted a bit, like the farmer's market that Kira sometimes went to for her groceries. A young American man, dressed in the distinctive protective vest that expat reconstruction advisors and technicians wore over there, was arguing with a merchant about something. Maybe the price of the fruits he wanted to buy. Reporters had interviewed him afterwards, and his words echoed in Kira's mind. All of a sudden... I heard the sounds made by the guardians patrolling the market change. They stopped to hover over me, and I knew something was wrong. In the video, the crowd was dispersing around him, pushing, jostling with each other to get out of the way. The person who took the video ran, too, and the screen was a chaotic blur. When the video stabilized, the vantage point was much further. Two black robots, about the size of small trucks, hovered in the air above the kiosk. They looked like predatory raptors, metal monsters. Even in the cell phone video, it was possible to make out the recorder warning in the local language the robots projected via loudspeakers. Kira didn't know what the warning said. A young boy, seemingly oblivious to the hovering machines above him, was running at the American man, laughing and screaming. His arms opened wide as if he wanted to embrace the man. I just froze. I thought, oh God, <laughs> I'm going to die. I'm going to die because this kid has a bomb on him. The militants had tried to adapt to the algorithms governing the robots by exploiting certain weaknesses. 
because they realized that children were assigned a relatively high value for collateral damage purposes and a relatively low value for targeting purposes, they began to use more children for their missions. Kiera had had to tweak the algorithm and the table of values to account for these new tactics. All of your changes were done at the request of the army and approved by them, said Dr. Stober. Your programming followed the updated rules of engagement and field practices governing actual soldiers. Nothing you've done was wrong. The Senate investigation will be just a formality. In the video, the boy kept on running towards the American. The warnings from the hovering guardians changed, got louder. The boy did not stop. A few more boys and girls, some younger, some older, came into the area cleared by the crowd. They ran after the first boy, shouting. The militants had developed an anti-drone tactic that was sometimes effective. They'd send the first bomber out alone to draw the fire of the drones. And while the drone operators were focused on him and distracted, a swarm of backup bombers would rush out to get to the target while the drones shot up the first man. Robots could not be distracted. Kira had programmed them to react to such tactics. The boy was now only a few steps away from the lone American. The guardian hovering on the right took a single shot. Kira flinched at the sound from the screen. It was so loud, said the young man in his interview. I had heard the guardians shoot before, but only from far away. Up close was a completely different experience. I heard the shot with my bones, not my ears. The child collapsed to the ground immediately. Where his head had been, there was now only empty space. The guardians had to be efficient when working in a crowd, clean. A few more loud shouts came from the video, making Kira jump involuntarily. The cell phone owner panned his camera over, and there were a few more bundles of racks and blood on the ground. The other children. The crowd stayed away, but a few of the men were coming back into the clearing, moving closer, raising their voices. But they didn't dare to move too close to the stunned young American, because the two guardians were still hovering overhead. It took a few minutes before... Actual American soldiers and the local police showed up at the scene and made everyone go home. The video ended there. When I saw that dead child lying in the dust, all I could feel was relief and overwhelming joy. He had tried to kill me, and I had been saved. Saved by our robots. Later, when the bodies were searched by the bomb removal robots, no explosives were found. The child's parents came forward. They explained that their son wasn't right in the head. They usually locked him in the house, but that day, somehow, he had gotten out. No one knew why he ran at that American. Maybe he thought the men looked different, and he was curious. All the neighbors insisted to the authorities that the boy wasn't dangerous, never hurt anyone, 
His siblings and friends had been chasing after him, trying to stop him before he got into any trouble. His parents never stopped crying during the interview. Some of the commenters below the interview video said that they were probably sobbing for the camera, hoping to get more compensation out of the American government. Other commenters were outraged. They constructed elaborate arguments and fought each other in a war of words in the comment threads, trying to score points. Some commenters brought up the point, again, that comments on news reports really ought to be moderated. Kira thought about the day she made the changes in the programming. She had been sipping a frappe because the day was hot. She remembered deleting the old value of a child's life and putting in a new one. It had seemed routine. Just another change like hundreds of other tweaks she had already made. She remembered deleting one if and adding another, changing the control flow to defeat the enemy. She remembered feeling thrilled at coming up with a neat solution to the nested logic. It was what the army had requested, and she had decided to do her best to give it to them faithfully. Mistakes happen, said Dr. Stober. The media circus will eventually end, and all the hand-wringing will stop. New cycles are finite, and something new will replace all this. We just have to wait it out. We'll figure out a way to make this system work better next time. This is better. This is the future of warfare. Kira thought about the sobbing parents, about the dead child, about the dead children. She thought about the 80% figure Dr. Stober had quoted. She thought about the number on her father's scorecard, and the parents and children and siblings behind those numbers. She thought about her father coming home. She got up to leave. You must remember, said Dr. Stover from behind her, you are not responsible. She said nothing. It was rush hour when Kira got off the bus to walk home. The streets were filled with cars and the sidewalks with people. Restaurants were filling up quickly. Waitresses flirted with customers. Men and women stood in front of display windows to gawk at the wares. She was certain that most of them were bored with coverage of the war. No one was coming home in body bags anymore. The war was clean. This was the point of living in a civilized country, wasn't it? so that one did not have to think about wars, so that somebody else, something else, would. She strode past a waitress who smiled at her, past the diners who did not know her name, into the throng of pedestrians on the sidewalk, laughing, listening to music, arguing and shouting, oblivious to the monster who was walking in their midst ignorant of the machines thousands of miles away deciding who to kill next. What I love about reading Ken Liu's science fiction is how it's never about the science fiction. I mean, it is, but it's really there to catalyze the actual story. 
which is about the human beings at its heart and how their lives intersect with those catalysts. Yeah, his writing is very character first. Mm -hmm. The sci-fi just sneaks up on you. Like, if you listen to the first five minutes of In the Loop, Mm -hmm. it's it's an intense family drama, Mm -hmm. and there's no sense of technology at all. It could be set now, it could be set in the future, or it could be set 200 years ago. That's exactly right. And it's so heartbreaking at every level. When Ken talks about some human lives having more value than others, he's reminding us what war really is at its most basic, the willingness to consider the other as being less human than those of our own tribe. I I get choked up every time he brings that up. Yeah, it's about the human psychological cost of killing, of being a killer, no matter how distant and sanitized the war machine tries to make it for its own soldiers. It's not a happy thought on which to end an episode, but we are a show primarily about dark fantastic fiction, and it doesn't usually get darker than this. Thanks, as always, for being my wingman, Christina. I I mean, whiplash. (laughs) If this is the kind of fiction that keeps you up at night, let us know with a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. And join us next time when we'll take you to where all is made of faith and trust and pixie dust and bullets. Until then, pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 74, features In the Loop by Ken Liu. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Mary Asadolahi. Associate produced by Alexis Latshaw. And executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Christina Telesca. Performed by Jane Santos. Audio produced by Amanda Rose Smith and Spoken Realms. Additional editing by Angela Yi. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kindle Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.